0: things that only grow in the presence of fire fire cleans out the dead wood the unnecessary I'm just suddenly I'm thinking of John Lewis good trouble good fire (laughs) there's good fire people are feeling very awoke and ready and motivated to do something I have never in my 82 years seen or felt anything like
1: this Jane Fonda has, in her own estimation, lived an extraordinary life. She was born in New York City in 1937 and has starred in nearly 50 films since making her debut in 1960. From the science fiction cult classic Barbarella to the comedy Nine to Five, Fonda's roles have spanned the gamut of film acting, earning her rafts of awards in the process, including two Academy Awards for Best Actress. She is, however, arguably as well known for her activism as she is for her performances in film and on television. From opposing the Vietnam War to hosting fundraisers in Hollywood for the Black Panther civil rights movement, from delivering part of her acceptance speech at the 1979 Oscars in American Sign Language to highlight the experience of people who are deaf, to launching her famous series of home workout videos in the early 1980s in order to finance the Campaign for Economic Democracy, the body she co-founded to end economic injustice in the US. The ways in which she has campaigned are as diverse and as various as the causes she's become a champion for. And last October, she began what she describes as the final chapter of her activism, which began just before her 82nd birthday. Fire Drill Fridays began as a series of climate rallies and protests in Washington DC, in which she and some of her fellow demonstrators were arrested week after week. A consequential presidential election, Jane Fonda says, means that her work in activism is far from done. I spoke to Jane Fonda from her home in Los Angeles for the big interview. Jane, I wanted to begin in May after the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. The protests, the demonstrations that unfurled in so many US cities following that incident what did you what was your reaction to them having been at the heart and at the helm of so many protest movements covering such a huge array of issues over such a such a span of your life how did you feel when when people took to the streets following george floyd's death
0: the demonstrations the protests the uprisings after the protests were thrilling to me thrilling in their breadth and depth and diversity I mean, there's a small town just south of where I'm living. It's all white, middle class. And they were out carrying Black Lives Matter signs. There's something about this moment that got people out into the streets, not just that they have been shut up for so long, but the pandemic has pulled the Band-Aid off the profound systemic injustice and inequality in this country. I don't think people really realized, many people, didn't realize how close to the edge most Americans live, just literally paycheck to paycheck, and how these are the people that we rely on to keep life going, the delivery men, the postal service, the nurses, the teachers, the home care workers, et cetera. And there's been a new appreciation, I think, of the need to address inequality and the need to create good jobs where people in the United States, the fact that so many people live in constant anxiety that they won't be able to feed their family—that's inexcusable in this country. Mm-hmm. And things have only gotten worse as neoliberalism has been at work here in the United States. So there's that. And then, you know, when we started Fire Drill Fridays in in D.C., we didn't know whether there was going to be traction. You know, I kind of thought, well, the young people have the Sunrise Movement and the Fridays for Future and Extinction Rebellion and Zero Hour and we need something for all folks. You know, it took about three or four. It took almost a month before we realized, holy cow, we've tapped into something really important. People started coming from all over the country. They wanted to be told what they can do. They wanted to be told, here's something you can do that's not so difficult. And then to take that next step and put their bodies on the line, engage in civil disobedience and risk arrest. And it had Profound transformative effects on people.
1: And it seems that that had a transformative effect on you, too. Is that fair to say?
0: Yeah. You know, in this day and age, in your country like in mine, it's not so easy to have the experience or find a way to put your whole self in alignment with your deepest values, which is what civil disobedience does. It's like stepping into yourself. It's very empowering. Now, obviously, it helps to be white and famous. You know, the police were told to behave well. If I'd been black, it would have been quite different. But it was, you know, for historic reasons, most of the people who got arrested were white. There was maybe two hands full of, maybe there were 10 African-American people in the course of the four months, and I understand why. But our goal was to reach people who understand that there's a climate crisis, understand that it's human created and just want to know what to do. And that's what happened. And most of them, when we asked often, we did have any of you ever done this before? Most hands went up. They'd never, this is something they'd never done. So -hmm. that was really rewarding
1: and you have chronicled it all jane in your new book what can i do my path from climate despair to action and i thought jane at the the very beginning of the book you describe the moment when a police officer during that first Fire Drill Fridays gathering uh, finally puts your hands behind your back and uh, ties them together with some white plastic handcuffs. Could you recall that moment for us and, and the sensation you had about how the the inner motivation you'd had for Fire Drill Fridays was now translating in a very physical way?
0: Well, I have been handcuffed before and put in jail before, but they were metal <laughs> and I was younger. <laughs> Now I'm almost 83 and they were white and they were painful and they put my arms behind my back and I have shoulder issues. So it, you know, it was hard, but I knew why I was there. I knew what I wanted to accomplish. I knew there would be a lot of press coverage and my goal was to, you know, people were going to say, well, my God, she's 82. And if she can do that, I can do that kind of thing. And, um, and I just, I, f- I felt so empowered, you know, not so empowered when we got to the police wagon, and I couldn't get into it because there was nothing to hold on to. My hands were behind my back, and and the step was high up, and so the officer had to take my fanny and push me <laughs> into the police wagon. <laughs> that was a little unceremonious.
1: And this moment, like the one that you're drawing attention to through Fire Drill Fridays, Jane, the idea of, of losing and putting all ceremony to one side is perhaps the least you can do. Is it fair to summarise it in that way?
0: I wanted to turn 83, or no, I wanted to turn 82 in jail. And I missed it by a day. They wouldn't put me in jail again. They did it once and they arrested me four more times. And then I got arrested again. And I was told if I did, I'd be put in jail, but they didn't do it because I knew that it would get a lot of attention. And the reason the attention is important is I don't need attention for me personally, but that it makes people realize the urgency of the climate crisis. So little time, 10 years to cut our fossil fuel emissions in half, which is an awesome, unprecedented task, yeah.
1: And are people listening?
0: I would say so as if we have grown I mean, the first Friday, we had 15 people arrested. The last Friday in DC, we had 350 people arrested. Um, last Friday, we had 600,000 people following us Mm -hmm. on social media and it keeps growing. And thousands of people are signing up to be volunteers. And what do we have them do? Well, we have the ability to read. We know who's been purged from the polls. And we can re-register them, number one. Number two, we can remind people of the importance of making a plan to vote. So we're registering people. We're specifically targeting, in some states, the Latinx community. We have people writing postcards to 10 associates or colleagues. Or um, We're doing things to help people talk to climate deniers about why this isn't a crisis, and people are asking for more. I feel hopeful myself. There's been lessons learned in the pandemic as well that pertain to the climate crisis. First of all, the need for a strong federal government. You know, for Since Reagan, there's been a, billions of dollars spent to try to convince the American people that big government is bad, the very people who need it the most big government is bad but we need government and we need it number two to be a prepared big government that has the capacity and the resilience to address things like pandemic and the climate crisis and then listen to experts listen to the scientists those are three things that pertain to the climate crisis too
1: I was speaking to an activist in the US recently who described the current protest moment in the United States as one of of two angers, an anger at the inequality, the systemic injustice, and another anger that just seems to want to sort of thwart any progress, that wants to cause damage, apparently for damage's sake. What do you make of this idea of, of two angers, and how healthy is that for a for a society like the United States?
0: Yes, yeah, it does feel like an angry time, but there is toxic anger, and then there's healing anger, just like there is destructive fire that can burn Australia, that can burn the Amazon, that right now is burning Northern California and my beloved Big Sur, the very place where I made the fateful call to to Bill McKibben and Naomi Klein and Annie Leonard is now having to be evacuated because of the fires. There's the bad fire, but then there's good fire. There's certain things that only grow in the presence of fire after mm-hmm. fire has passed. Number one, number two, fire cleans out the dead wood, the unnecessary. I'm just suddenly I'm thinking of John Lewis. <laughs> good trouble. Good fire. <laughs> there's good fire. People are feeling very awoke and ready and motivated to do something. I have never in my 82 years seen or felt anything like this. And it's very beautiful and encouraging.
1: And does that feel like a unique feeling for someone like you who has seen so many and been involved in so many chapters of social upheaval over the past six decades or so?
0: It does. It feels like a turning point. You know, the notion of Intersectionality, that word which was put out into the universe by Kimberly Crenshaw and seemed only a year and a half, two years ago, is very, I don't know, inside and rhetorical. Now it is being lived. It is being lived. People understand that all these, the mentality that created the climate crisis, the colonial, misogynistic, sexist, xenophobic mentality that the earth is just ours to use it's an endless pit for our wastes we have the right to exploit it Mm
1: -hmm. like
0: we do women and indigenous people and people of color these are all connected all these things and the solutions are interconnected as well and people just get it and the solutions are so duh (laughs) you know creating a sustainable clean energy future creates millions more jobs than fossil fuel industry does and you know what we just have to do is make sure that the fossil fuel workers get trained and paid properly so they can fill those jobs. There's so many unemployed people in the US now, they can be trained to do these jobs. There's so much that's needed. There's going to be more pandemics coming and there's going to be massive climate disruptions, and our country is totally without resilience. Whether it's our sewage systems, our dams, our roads, our bridges, our healthcare system, we are not prepared. So one of the things that we are ready to do the minute please, God, please, that Joe Biden is elected, is to force him to create resiliency in this country. That's what has to happen.
1: And I realize it's a fairly precarious business to ask people to gaze into a crystal ball. But do you feel, given your campaigning and your activism and your support for Joe Biden, do you feel that he can win?
0: Yeah, I think absolutely he can. I think there's trickery, there's defranchising going on. It's you know, Trump is making it as hard as possible for people to vote. But people are so angry about that (laughs) that they're finding all kinds of ways to do things about it. You know, like they were trying to neuter the postal service. Well, people just rose up. You know, and I don't think they expected how much people love the post office. And are fighting to save the post office, it's really, it's just at the drop of, at a moment's notice, 800 protests all across the country. It's really great. Yeah, I think that Joe Biden can be elected if we can get out the vote.
1: And in Joe Biden's economic proposals, the green economy, this idea of building back better, which is a slogan of the Biden campaign, is pretty central To it, I think it was back in 2016 when Hillary Clinton was also proposing a pretty widespread idea of creating jobs as part of the green economy. At the time, I recall a big swell of the discussion being around, well, what if workers don't want to train? What if workers don't want to be told that they have to work in a new industry? How do you bridge those two things, do you think, Jane?
0: workers in that industrial sector probably want to continue working in that industrial sector. But man, are there things to do in that industrial sector. I mean, there's nothing wrong with pipelines. Sometimes they're used for oil, but they're also used for drinking water in Flint. And uh, our, our sewage system is pathetic. And there's great places all over the United States that have no sewage system or running water i mean it's quite unbelievable there's so much work to do workers should be able to to be trained to work in the same sectors they were working in but instead of fossil fuel it can be it can be all the charging stations that need to be put in it can be a smart energy grid it can be retrofitting our pipelines for water and sewage it can be retrofitting buildings, there's just so many things, but they should have a choice. You see, it's been done, it's called a just transition, meaning a fair way to transition off of fossil fuels to a clean, renewable economy. It's Germany, for example. Germany that relied so much on coal. 30,000 coal miners have been switched to another sector. Why did it work smoothly? Because the workers were at the table, their unions were at the table, the communities and the environmentalists, and the government. Those five sectors were all at the table. And so it got worked out. Everybody didn't get 100% of what they wanted, but they got enough. And if they didn't get that last 10%, they know why. So it worked. And that's what we have to do. Joe you know, Biden is, you know, Scranton, Pennsylvania, he's, he's kind of a, a he understands the working class.
1: And you have said that you're inspired by the the activism of Greta Thunberg in Sweden by the writing of Naomi Klein, the, the Canadian environmentalist. You also talk about. You know, the responsibility that younger people in your view are taking on, are putting on their shoulders, and that older people who are in the positions that can make the decisions that will change climate policy in places around the world, that you felt that older people weren't stepping up to the plate in the way that younger people were. You intentionally and actively went out and sought younger voices to collaborate with you on Fire Drill Fridays. What was that? What were those relationships like?
0: It keeps me humble because. You know, I've met a lot of leadership and are they smart? I mean, way smarter than me. They know the issue inside out. They're the ones that keep telling us, you've got to focus on the science. All the speeches that really stayed with me from DC were all from the young people, because you knew how scared they were that they might not have a future. There was one working class white girl from South Philly who desperately wanted to go to college and she had no money, but she got scholarships and she got accepted. And then she decided not to go because she needed to work on the climate crisis. A lot of young people are giving up their dreams to work on the climate crisis. And I find that just, I find it so touching. And, you know, they're the ones that were saying for a number of years, where are you older people? You know, You've got to step up to the plate or we're going to behave like the damn adults. Come on. So I took them up on it. And we're, you know, we're very close. We've had a lot of young people on our fire drill Fridays. And it's just, it's, it's, I just feel, I feel so grateful that I have been able to interact with the people that I have over the last year because of fire drill Fridays, young and old.
1: And you recall in one of the early Fyadral Fridays meeting a designer, part of the, the group, who is Vietnamese, and you told them that you'd been to Vietnam a few times, and they asked you, oh, why? And they didn't really know your history of activism and the huge part you played in resistance to the Vietnam War in the United States. How did how did that feel to be a relative unknown in the eyes of someone uh, as part of Fyadral Fridays?
0: I'll never forget, I was in a Greenpeace office and she was on a speakerphone. And I asked her where, because we were discussing, I don't know, the third week's poster, I think. And I said, well, where in Vietnam do you come from? And she said, "Hanoi." And I said, oh, I've been there a few times. And she said, and everybody in the room could hear it. She said, oh, how come? And just everybody (laughs) started laughing and clapping and thought it was so great. She obviously then, between then and the next time I talked to her, did a little research. (laughs) <laughs> and had a lot more to say to me about oh my god i had no idea that was fun
1: yeah and given jane that the areas that you have been an activist within have been so diverse over all the decades have they felt like parts of one long narrative to you or have they felt like separate chapters that have that have struck you along the way as your your life's path has sort of wound its way Forward? Have they felt like one continuous thing or have they felt like different moments in your life and and your understanding of the world around you?
0: It feels both like a long thread, a leitmotif that travels through the last 60 years of my life that has chapters in it. And, you know, a lot of it had to do with where I was at in that time. You know, the Vietnam War was all consuming, and when that ended, That was the end of the 70s, and the economy was being taken over by corporations. That was the beginning of the problem, of the real problems. And that's when Reagan was was then elected. And so it became about, okay, we're a democracy, but we're not an economic democracy. So the fight came for for economic democracy. That's why I did my workout was to give money to the organization. It was called the Campaign for Economic Democracy. And we, we did it in California because we're the fifth largest economy in the world. And whatever happens here has a huge effect on, and a lot of the people that we got elected are still are still in various offices, like the Air Quality Board of California. You know, that was a chapter. And then, and then I went through some marriages and that led me to become more active in the women's movement. But then as I began to realize that the climate crisis was was getting more and more perilous, it's sort of like, that's it for me. Now that's what I'm gonna focus for the rest of my life.
1: And Jane, earlier this year, you presented the Oscar for Best Picture, which went to Parasite, the first ever film in not in the English language to win the Best Picture Prize. You said in your introduction to announcing the award that stories and that films still really had the power to sort of reflect ourselves back on us, but also to sort of change the way we see the world. There's a really beautiful romance to that idea. But I wonder if that is still something you believe about The Art of Filmmaking.
0: Films and television. God, I've just been watching all 12 episodes of I May Destroy You, you know, and Insecure. And I think that television and films can have a huge impact on people. It creates our consciousness. It makes us aware of things that we may not be aware of. I think they're really, really important. as all art.
1: And the movie industry has been in a state of upheaval for its own reasons, over the past few years. What struck you about what those conversations, the Me Too movement, what those conversations, the the changes they've had in a tangible way, I suppose? How do you think things have changed?
0: Well, the thing that's hitting me the most right now, and it's partly because I'm watching I May Destroy You with Michaela Coel, I'm realizing that I'm seeing the life of a black woman in a way that I never have before. And we are seeing more, there's the ghetto and there's the hood and there's all of that. That's often shown on television, but the kind of striving lower middle to middle class black men and women, where they live, how they live, how they think, (laughs) I mean, I'm just, you know, amazed how often they talk about white people. God, don't bring any white people around here. Or don't, you know, it's interesting as a white person to watch it. And I completely get it. And I really appreciate it. And I'm just learning. I'm learning a lot about about Black culture. that's different than what I've learned before. That's one thing that's changed. The Me Too movement has had an effect. Guys seem still ready to whip it out. I don't know why, where they get the idea that we're just longing to see their, their rig, but that continues and people are having to pay the consequences now, which is really great. You know, I've, fortunately, I started about 20 years ago to become proficient on social media. So I'm grateful for that. My, my friends my age aren't always too proficient on social media. So I'm very, very happy with, I love social media. I don't follow anyone. I don't read anyone else's stuff. I just do my own and I'm really happy doing it.
1: And Jane, our time together is, is almost drawing to a close, but I wanted to ask whether you ever look back and try to measure the impact of your activism. How do you say or see how your activism, the things you protested for, the changes that have been wrought by that, do you ever try to measure them after all these years?
0: Well, I don't measure it, but when I'm made aware of it, I'm impressed. And you know, when I really became aware of it was the last time I had a, I did a book tour. It was for my memoir. And I really put a lot of time. And I went to Des Moines and I went to Waterloo. I went to, you know, little towns and cities, small cities like that. I went all over the United States. And it was fascinating because it was mostly women and they would line up. And one would say, oh my God, I love Cat Baloo so much. And then another, the next one would come and say, you helped me get over my mastectomy with your workout. That really changed my life. And then another one would come and say, I marched with you in San Diego on September 7th. Do you remember? (laughs) And so I realized that I've impacted people in, in so many different ways, culturally, physically, and politically. And that made me feel mean really good i mean it's nice to be able to reach your old age realizing that you've you've managed to have impacts in a lot of different ways
1: my thanks to jane fonda for joining us on the big interview you can read our profile of Jane Fonda in the November issue of Monocle magazine, which is available now. Jane Fonda's new book, What Can I Do? My Path from Climate Despair to Action, is published by Penguin Random House. The big interview is produced in London by Yolene Gauffin. I'm Thomas Lewis. Thank you very much for listening, and goodbye for now.